the central figure in the last chapters of Breshit. His work is cut out for him. He has a lot to do. And remember Jacob's vision, and he says this back in chapter 28, was to build the family. He called it the Bayit, to build the house. By that he meant a structure in which every member is actually included. So Jacob has 12 sons. The book is patriarchal, but up to this point, uh, it's never been a situation where two sons can share a blessing. They can perhaps have a, you know, an amicable splitting. They can maybe get along from a distance, but they can share the blessing. When I say the blessing, there's one covenantal blessing in the book. There are many blessings. Yishmael has a blessing, big blessing, but it's not covenantal. Esav has a blessing, not covenantal. So it's Yaakov, not Esav, it's Yisog, not Yishmael. But Jacob's promise, vision, hope, uh, Rabbi, yes. sorry, can you just move your camera down a little bit? Let me uh, see. Yep, that's it, perfect. Is that better? That's amazing, thank you. Good. Okay, fine. Um, but you can hear me, right? Yeah, you it was just we couldn't okay. see the bottom of your face, um, but now we can okay. see you. Okay. All right. That's fine. So now I'm okay. Okay. But anyway, um, so Yaakov's promised vision is to build a family which includes all, all of his children. The problem is, as we well know, that that has not happened at all. There have been many divisions within the family, primarily, but not exclusively, Joseph and the brothers. Joseph is separated from his brothers until now. And we'll have to see if they can actually come together in some way. Obviously, there must be a lot of very hard feelings given the fact that the brothers intended to kill him. That does typically not engender warm feelings. And Joseph's been a slave and Joseph has a whole history. <clears throat> and Joseph has revealed his identity to the brothers. And now the question is, what relationship will there be? That's really the core question. So, and that's the core question of the book. The book of Genesis is about the construction of the family as a prototype of nation. So, and we need every member of the family. It's not like you can have 11 sons and not 12, because that would not be what Jacob's vision is. Jacob's vision is everybody is included. So we, we have to find a way, Yaakov has to find a way to include everybody. And that's the, really the work that Yaakov will have over the last several chapters of Breshit. How is he going to do that? Is it possible to do it? Up to this point, we've never had a situation where two brothers share a blessing. There's been one situation. That's the story of Judah and Tamar that we spoke about at great length. But outside of that, beginning with the first set of brothers, Cain and Hevel, uh, that didn't work out well, especially not for Hevel, but not for Cain either. So the story of the human history is that one brother kills the other, one brother attacks the other, but the idea of sharing a blessing has never happened. And this is Jacob's main charge. So that's by way of a brief introduction. And now let's begin by, with another introduction, which is the following. We're gonna start with chapter 46. But before we get to chapter 46, I wanna read again the last verse of chapter 45. The last verse of chapter 45, the brothers have told their father, they returned from Egypt and they've told their father Yaakov that Joseph is alive, not only alive, he's a ruler of the land of Egypt. Initially, he doesn't believe them. His heart stops or skips. He doesn't believe them. But then he sees the wagons. He sees the wagons that have been sent to transport the family down to Egypt. 
these were wagons. It says here in the next to last verse of 45, So we see the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him. And the spirit of their father was revived. So he sees these wagons. The wagons actually were Pharaoh's decision. And, but basically it's Pharaoh Joseph who, Yaakov sees that Joseph has, Pharaoh's doing what he thinks Joseph wants. So he sees Joseph has sent Agolot. And he realizes that it's true, that, that Yosef is alive. In the last verse of chapter 45, Ayomi Yisrael, Rav, enough, he says, says Yaakov, enough. Od Yosef and Yichai, my son Joseph still lives. Od Yosef, Chai. El Chavir Enu Beterem Mamut, I will go and see him before I die. Yaakov is old already, but he has one wish. He wants to see his beloved Joseph before he dies. That's what he says at the end of chapter 45. Now, when you read that verse, now Joseph has sent the wagons to transport all their goods. We'll get back to that later. But the question is, when you read this verse, I must go see him before I die. What is Yaakov thinking? On one hand, if you read that verse alone, I want to see my son before I die. Sounds like I'm going down to Egypt. I want to see him. I want to talk to him. I want to stay there for a while. And then what it sounds like is, and maybe then I'll go back home. I want to see he's okay. I want to, have, we have so much, we've, all these years. And I, he was presumed dead. But there's not a sense from that verse, I want to see him before I die. You don't get the sense that he intends to stay there forever. On the other hand, the wagons are there bringing them down. And Joseph has said, there's five more years of famine. So they're not going for a week either but they're not necessarily going forever. That's what Yaakov seems to be saying. That's the very important point, because now in chapter 46, God will appear to Jacob. So we started this last time. This is one of the critical, the critical set of verses in the book of Breshit, chapter 46. So let's just start with it again briefly, and then I'll get into what I didn't say last time. And I'll take comments or questions. This is by Isaiah's Revachoa Shavo, by Yovobiyer Rashava, by Yisvach Zvachim Lelohei Aviv Yitzvah. So Jacob is traveling and he comes to Beersheba. He brings sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Very important verse. The first thing we notice, of course, is that Jacob is about to leave the land. He's about to go to Egypt and he stops in Beersheba. Now that is significant, of course, because Beersheba is the place from which you leave. And we've seen this certainly on one other occasion, I could say two other occasions where you leave from Beersheba. What immediately comes to mind and what is obviously parallel chapter 46 is chapter 28. Because in chapter 28, when Yaakov runs away from home, he runs away from home to avoid his brother Esau who wants to kill him. And he also was sent away from home by his father, Isaac, in the beginning of chapter 28 to find a wife from his mother's family. So the two reasons that Yaakov leaves. And where does Yaakov, Yaakov leaves leaving the land? Uh, it's the place that Abraham said to the servant, make sure my son Isaac never goes there. He can never leave the land. That's precisely where Jacob is going. 
to Haran, to Padan Aram. He's leaving the land. And where does he leave from? Jacob leaves from Beersheba. So now we have in chapter 46, a precise parallel to chapter 28. In each case, Jacob is leaving the land. And in each case, the point of departure is Beersheba. Now, when you see that, and that's obvious, but when you see that, what that means is we immediately look for parallels between the two stories, apart from the fact that these are the two situations in which Jacob leaves the land. <coughs> now, let me make one uh, point here in the very, well, let me read a few, a few more verses. There's a lot to say here. I'll get back to the sacrifices to his father Isaac, God of his father Isaac. But yet now God begins to speak. God spoke to Jacob in vision of the night. Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, Hineni. Now we'll get back to this. Now remember, the first time Jacob left from Beersheba, he also has a vision at night, right? Remember, he goes to sleep. He takes a rock, puts it under his head, and he, like a pillow. <laughs> he goes to sleep because the sun is setting. And he, in his, in his sleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees the Sulam Mutzavart. So he says, a staircase to heaven. Above the staircase sounds God. And God speaks to Jacob in that, in that, uh, in that vision. That was in chapter 28, the vision of the night. And here we have another vision of the night. So it's parable in that sense. <coughs> and over here, God says to Jacob, Don't be afraid. You're going down to Egypt. For I will make you there a great nation. Notice the word sham, there. You'll become a great nation there. You're going to grow. The nation will be, will be constructed there, outside the land, in the land of Egypt. Don't be afraid. We remember it back in chapter 28 when Jacob woke up. The Torah says, Jacob was very frightened. So we have fear in both stories. But here God is telling Jacob in a preemptive way, don't be afraid. I mean, there is a reason to be afraid, but don't be afraid. There you will become a great nation. And then God continues, I will go down with you to Egypt. I'll be with you down in Egypt. I'm going down with you. And I will bring you up. Literally, Joseph's hands will be over your eyes. The translator here says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's one possible understanding. The Rashbam understood it differently. Get back to that. But, so we, this verse, verse number three <coughs> is also very interesting for us. It obviously, once again, takes us back to chapter 28. Because remember in the dream in chapter 28, what Jacob sees in chapter 28, he sees a staircase or ladder, Sulam Mutzavarza, Vine Malachi Elohim, Olim Biyordimbo. And he sees the angels of God, messengers of God, Olim Biyordim, going up and going down. Over here, we have the same theme of Olim Biyordim, except over here, it's not the angels or the messengers ascending and descending the staircase, but over here, it's God personally. Over there, God was above the ladder or the staircase in Yitzhava love. Over here, God says, personally, I'm going to go down with you and I'm going to bring you up. 
So there's another parallel between the two, <coughs> between the two stories. And then we have the strange statement for Yosef, Yoshit, Yodo, Arvinecha, and Joseph will place his hands over your eyes. Now, what does that mean? <coughs> so I think the simplest explanation, the simplest significance, Joseph will close your eyes or put his hand over your eyes. The plain meaning I think is Joseph will be there when you die. There's such a custom to close the eyes of the deceased. And that's probably the illusion over here. Now, if that is the pshat, and I see no reason to think it's not the pshat, then what it means is what God is saying to Yaakov is, listen, you may think you're going down to see your son Joseph, but let me tell you something. You see him, you're gonna stay for a while, you're gonna come back, that's not happening. You are going to, you're going to Mitzrayim and you're gonna be there the rest of your life. You're not returning in, in your lifetime. You're gonna die in Egypt. However, then we have the question, what would it mean then to say, I'm gonna bring you back up. If you die in Egypt, what does it mean I'm gonna bring you back up? So presumably what it means is, well, it could mean one of two things, but on the simplest level, I will bring your body back up. You'll be buried back here in the land, which is, is what happens. Now, the reason I make, make this point now is the following. Because here, in fact, we have another parallel between chapter 28 and chapter 46. In chapter 28, we all remember, no doubt, if not, I'll refresh our collective memories, that when Jacob, when Rebecca, when Rivka hears, she hears that, or she is told that Esav plans to kill Yaakov. True, Esav says, once my father dies, I will, I will kill him. But Rebecca is concerned about that. He might not wait till their father dies, then Yisok might die soon anyway. Yisok says, I'm very old. I don't know when I'm gonna die. But in point of fact, Esav may be impetuous, may get angry, may kill Yaakov and not wait. So she says to Yaakov, you have to run away. She says at the end of chapter 27, you listen to what I tell you to do. Run away, go run away from your brother. Go to my family, go to Haran. And then she says, I will call for you. I will call for you and bring you back. Stay with him, said Rebecca. Stay with him for a few days. Stay with my brother, brother's family for a few days. That's what Rebecca said. Stay for a few days. That's in chapter 27. When you get to chapter 28, when God appears to Jacob in the dream, and God said to Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. And I will bring you back to the land. I won't forsake you. So when God says to Jacob, I'm going to protect you. Um, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back. When you hear God saying, I'm going to bring you back, and you remember what Rebecca said, I'm going to send for you and bring you back after a few days, what God is saying to Yaakov is something very different. First of all, it's not going to be a few days. If we're a few days, God wouldn't have to say, I'm not going to abandon you, and I'm going to protect you. He's going for two weeks to his uncle's house to find a wife. He's going to come, mother will send up a few days, he said. But God is saying, no, no, it's not a few days. And now we're not a few days. 
what awaits you with the other side is something very, very dangerous. You need divine protection and you're going to get the divine protection and I'm not going to abandon you. That's the story of chapter 28. Now we have the parallel over here. Yaakov had said, I want to see my son before I die. That's the last verse of chapter 45. It says God to Jacob, you will see your son before you die, but he will sue you. He will see you after you die. He's going to be with you. You're not going down for a week or two, for your mimach or anything like that. This is, from your perspective, going to be a very long, long stay in the land of Egypt. I'm going to bring you back, whatever that means, but it's not just for a few days. Yet, have no fear. Have no fear. So the parallels are important over here. And let me get to the main point of the parallels. Some of that I know those who have studied with me or in my Haggadah understand this to be very central, which is that what Chumash has set up over here for us, what Haggadah understood, this centerpiece of the Haggadah, is that Jacob's sojourn in the house of Lavan and Israel's sojourn in the land of Egypt are <coughs> fundamentally the same. They're parallel stories and must be read as such. Now God understands this. Go and study what Lavan the Aramean did to our ancestors, Jacob. Pharaoh he decreed against the boys. Lavan <coughs> would have destroyed everything. The very statement on the night of Passover, we're talking about the Midrashim, about the Tziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, and we start with Lavan. And he's even worse than Pharaoh. He's more dangerous in the way than Pharaoh. He would have destroyed everything. Minimally, what it's saying to the reader is, if you want to understand the story of the Exodus, you have to read the story of Lavan, because essentially they're the same stories. And what I pointed out in the few minutes so far today is that it's set up this way. The Chumash understands this perfectly well. It's set up exactly this way. It's exactly the same story. You leave from Beersheba. And by the way, I would add about leaving from Beersheba that there's another story. Not only the two Jacob narratives, the two, the two goings of Jacob into exile, where he leaves from Beersheba, which speaks of the parallel stories, obviously. I pointed out a few of the parallels, probably more. But there's one other story where you leave from Beersheba to go to the place of destination. But there it's the opposite. They are not going to exile. They are going to the chosen place, the most chosen place. And that, of course, is the story of Abraham. Because Abraham discovery of this chosen place, this sacred place, the special place, the place that God chooses, the place that God is present, which is somewhere in Mount Moriah. Abraham named the place Hashem Yireh. Hashem Yeomer Hayom Bahar Hashem Yeireh. But where does, Jake, where does Abraham leave from? Well, he's in Beersheba. Because the end of chapter 21, Vayagar Abraham, the Eretz Plishtim Yamim Rabim, and it means Beersheba. Jacob, Abraham leaves in Beersheba. And God says to Abraham, leave Beersheba. Beersheba is not the place. That's the place that you may have chosen, but it's not the place that I chose. And I'm the one who makes the choices. So you leave from your Beersheba, where you have the treaty with Abimelech, where you planted a tree, you were called to the eternal God. Rabim, you think you found the place finally after all your wanderings? No. The place is the place, which I, which I choose. And over here, we have a very similar uh, thought as well in the few verses in the beginning of chapter 46. Because in the third verse, first Jacob 
verse number three, chapter 46. If you scroll down right there, one more verse. Scroll down, right. Yes. So one of the things that we readers look for always are key words. Over here, it's a very short speech. Uh, God says, don't be afraid. Um, Jacob, Jacob, and the speech is very brief, verse number three and four. But in verse number three and four, we have a word that repeats three times. And the word is the word Anochi. Anochi is the emphatic I, me. I am the God of your father. I will go, I will go down with you to Egypt. Anochi Eredimcha, Anochi Achagamago. It's actually very interesting that the Anochi over here, going back to the Passover Haggadah for a second. So the Passover Haggadah has a text, which the Haggadah provides various drashot, the Doresh Kola and the core text of the Passover Seder, as we have it, are the four verses from the book of Devarim, the pilgrim's prayer. The one who brings the first fruits to the temple as they makes a declaration. And the Haggadah has the first four verses of that declaration, beginning with the uh, words, Arami Ovei and then the Haggadah, if you remember, has about 20 drashot. It breaks up the four verses into pieces. And it provides us with various drashot. The Mishnah says we're supposed to do the, 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 the darshaning on the night of the Seder. But the Haggadah, the creator of the Haggadah, whoever that may be, is helping us out by giving us some drashot. I often wonder if the Baal Haggadah is actually helping us that much by giving us what to say and people to read. It sort of takes the burden of, of darshaning away from ourselves, but okay. That's what we have in the Haggadah. Now, if you remember the Haggadah, so the Haggadah has, breaks up the verses into pieces and the Haggadah provides a drasha. And typically the drasha, I think about 20, say the 20 of them, in about 18 of the cases, it's either 17 or 18, I believe it's 18, the drasha of the Haggadah is made by citing another biblical verse. As it is written, it quotes, the verses are in Deuteronomy and Tvarim, and the Drasha, uh, as it is written, they explaining it as it is written. Yeah, you see it over there. Um, that's true of almost all of them. Shenemar, 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 with two exceptions. Here's one of the exceptions. Vayered Mitzrayma. It says that, that, that um, my father was a wandering Aramean who went down to Egypt. Vayered Mitzrayma comments the Haggadah, four words, Anus Alpi Hadibur, compelled by divine speech or divine statement. And it doesn't cite a verse. Almost every other one cites the verse. But this one simply says, Anus Alpi Hadibur. Now, if we had, if we were studying the Haggadah, I would get into why over here perhaps there is no verse. Leave that out. But I want to make a different point about the statement, Anus Alpi Hadibur. Here, the translator, he has helpless on account of the word. Anus means compelled, not helpless, but compelled on account of the word. Okay, the, the Haggadah, he gives his own interpretation. That's not my interpretation. I also think it's incorrect. 
But what I want to make a different point over here. On Nusa Piyadi board, the Gemara says in Makot, famous Gemara, there are 613 commandments. 613 commandments. And that says the Gemara, the Gematria, because the letters in Hebrew also have a numerical value, is the Gematria of Torah. Tough Vav Reish Hei. Tough is 400, Vav is 6, Reish is 200, A is 5. So the Gemara says, okay, 200 plus 400 plus 6 plus 5 is not 613. It's 611. You're too short. You said 613, but Torah is 611. To which the Gemara answers, Anochi lo yielecha mi pihadibur. Torah tzivolanu Moshe. Moshe told us 611 commandments, but there were two commandments that God said, al pihadibur. God spoke directly to us. What are the two? The first two of the Ten Commandments. And the first they mention is, Anochi Hashem Elohecha, Asher Otseiticha Mi'aretz Mitzrayim. Anochi is al-piyadibur. And what the God is picking up over here is exactly this point. Vayered Mitzrayim Anus al-piyadibur, compelled by the dibur of God. And what is the dibur of God? The dibur of God, as we just read, three times the same word, Anochi. Now, the Anochi actually is very interesting because the Anochi in the Ten Commandments is, I am the God who took you out of Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments start. The Anochi over here in our chapter is the Anochi that sent us down. One might say, I, I will bring you down to Egypt and I will bring you up. If we think of it more globally, it's exactly the point. The same way I bring you down, I bring you up. And I want, this is not a trivial point. It's, it's clever, but that's not the point of it. It's not the cleverness. There is a profound idea over here about the Chumash. And the point is the following. When you read the book of, you read the Torah, you read the book of Genesis, where we, we've been moving along through the book of Genesis. Um, and you ask yourself the question, the book of Genesis begins with Gan Eden, basically. And the book of Genesis ends, the last word of Genesis is the word Mitzrayim. You end up in Mitzrayim. And the question is, concerning that and concerning the book in general, how does one read this book? Why do we end up in Egypt? To which one can give two different, radically different answers, almost contradictory answers. One is, well, you end up in Mitzrayim because brothers can't get along with brothers, because the family is in the process of dissolving all kinds of misbehaviors, human error, on the part of every member of the family, which is the story of Genesis. And it results sometimes when people can't get along, they have to separate. And part of the separation, sometimes you end up in bad places and the ending up in Mitzrayim uh, is a function of the fact that the brothers uh, can't get along. One, try, one set tries to kill the other brother, etc. In short, where we end up in the book is a function of our own behavior and our own misbehavior. That's what the book's about. We have to take responsibility. That's one way to read the book. There's another way to read the book, which is it's not about human behavior at all. Is that God said to Abraham back in chapter 15, your descendants will be strangers and they will be enslaved and they'll be abused for 400 years. Fourth generation shall return to the land. This is God's plan. That's another way to read the book. The two ways to read the book are very different, contradictory, one might say. It's God's plan. It doesn't matter what we do. 
If it's a function of what we do, totally, we mean God's plan. It's a function of our behavior. The Chumash uh, maintains, I believe, both of these propositions to be true. Yes, they logically contradict foreknowledge, free will, whatever. That's for the philosophers. But as far as the Torah is concerned, they're both true. <clears throat> I would say in conjunction with this, that in thinking about the book of Genesis generally, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about Genesis generally because I'm working to write a commentary on Genesis. Um, but if you think about the book of Genesis, we know that the book of Genesis begins with two different creation narratives. Chapter one, and then you have the story of Gan Eden in chapters two and three. And it's in a world of commentary about these two chapters, about the seeming contradictions between them. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote about the, the sense you have of who is the human being that emerges from chapter one as opposed to the human being of chapters two and three. That may be accurate in some sense, but in point of fact, the difference between chapter one and two and three is not primarily about two different understandings of the human being, which may even be true, but that's peripheral. Because chapter one is not about the human being, actually. Chapter, the hero of chapter one of Genesis is not the human being. Human being is mentioned on the same day as the creation of the animals. Yes, God is, gives more uh, significance to the human being, there's no question. God blesses the human, God gives the human certain control over the world, that's all true. But the focus of chapter one is not the human being. The hero of chapter one is God and God alone. That's true of chapter one. But the main character of chapter two and three is not God. The main character of chapter two and three is the human being. It's the potential of the human being, the gender of the human being, the relationship of the human being, the responsibility of the human being, the aloneness of the human being, the mortality of the human being, and on and on and on. They're two different stories. The first one's about God. That's how the Torah begins. It's about God's world, God's creation. The second one's not about God. God's a player, yes. It's about the human being. And that introduction to the Bible, actually, is actually relevant to what I've been talking about the last couple of minutes, because what the Torah is saying, in effect, among many, many other things, is when you read this book, remember these two things. On one hand, it's about God. And God has, God runs the world. God's the creator. God has a plan. Anochi. Anochi. I'm the God who take, brings you to Egypt. I'm the God who takes you out of Egypt. It's my plan. You have to understand my plan and act accordingly, but it's my plan. I determine. I choose the place. I choose the when. I choose the how. That's chapter one. Then you get to the next chapter, which is about exile, which is about human beings' limitations and possibilities. That's a different story. <clears throat> and we're looking at the way people behave <coughs> and, the <con> <coughs> and the consequences of their behavior. So these first, this, this introduction to the Bible, I would say, is a very important point because it really, here, what, here, here is the Anochi. Here what God is saying to Jacob is, this is my plan. This is the Anochi. And Jacob's response, even before God said Anochi, in the previous verse, when God said, Yaakov, Yaakov, Vayomer Hineni, and Jacob says Hineni. 
And just to repeat what I mentioned on the last time we met, for those that were here and those that were not here before, I'll mention it now, that if you think, go back to chapter 27, the transfer story of the blessing from Isaac to one of his sons, turns out that Jacob takes that blessing. In that chapter, in that transfer story, the one who says Hineni in chapter 27 is not Jacob, it's Esau. When, when Esau's father summons him, Esau says Hineni. Jacob doesn't say Hineni. Abraham says Hineni at the Akedah. That's the first transfer story from Abraham to Isaac. But in the second transfer story is the missing Hineni. And we wait for the missing Hineni. And there actually, Jacob says Hineni twice in this book. This is the second time he says it. And here is the real Hineni. And the real Hineni is said, it's very striking. The real Hineni, he never said Hineni to his father in 27. But here he says Hineni in the context of bringing sacrifices to the God of Isaac. Here's where Jacob actually is connecting to his father Yitzvah, to the covenant of Isaac. Yaakov, Yaakov, Yomer Hineni. And here is where Jacob on one end is connecting to Isaac, but on the other hand, he's connecting to his children because his mission will be, whether he understands it yet or not, I'm not sure, but he, he's being told by God what his mission is. Joseph will place his hands over your eyes. We'll get to that later on. But Jacob has a very important mission because Jacob's mission in Egypt, which in effect he will accept and he will carry out very well. He's got to figure out how to build this family because how do you in fact include Joseph in the covenantal blessing? Remember that Joseph has named his eldest son Menashe, forgetfulness. For God has enabled me to forget my father's house and my suffering. How do you bring Joseph back into the picture, apart from the fact that there may be very hard feelings, understandably, between Joseph and the, and the, and the other brothers? So this is Jacob's mission. This is the Hineni. So here's the Hineni we've been waiting for for about 20 chapters. Here's where Yaakov says Hineni. So this is actually an awesome moment in the book. Yaakov, Yaakov, Ayomer Hineni, the Akeda, Avraham, Avraham, Ayomer, at the Akeda, Abraham said Hineni. I want to make one other point before I stop and take comments or questions. And that's the following point about the book in general. It's a point I've made in the past. And actually, it's a very important point, which is this. If you go back to chapter 28, where Yaakov goes to sleep, the sun sets, he goes to sleep. He doesn't know where he's sleeping. It turns out he goes to sleep in the sacred place. Six times, the... Um, Torah uses the word hamakom, hamakom, bamakom, the place. And Jacob wakes up. This is, the, this, is the, this is the gate to heaven, says Jacob. He discovered the gate to heaven. He discovered it when he sound asleep. He discovered it at the point in time where he's going down, leaving the land, going to the house of Lavan, the dangerous house of Lavan, where he will reside there, not just for a few days, but for 20 years, and he barely gets out. And in contrast to Abraham, Abraham says he named it the Akedah, chapter 22. It's the culmination of his life. Everything is going to be set in order. It's going to figure out who his covenantal child is, what is Sarah's place, what is the rest of the family's place, what is the place that God has chosen. And that takes, that's a lifetime's work. That's the culmination of Abraham's life, the Akedah. So what do we make of that? Abraham waits a lifetime to find the place. 
But Jacob finds the place towards the beginning of his career after he's stolen a blessing and he's sound asleep, no less. What is that about? So what I suggested in the past, and I'll mention it now, I think it's an important point. They have two different missions. Abraham's mission is to find the place. And he finds the place after all the wanderings of the Akedah, finds Hamakom, he names the place. Jacob's mission is not to find the place. Jacob has a different mission, which, is, which may be much more difficult. Jacob's mission is to return to the place. Can you get back? Once you've left the sacred place, can you return? In the book of Genesis, people that leave the sacred place do not return. Jacob is the notable exception. So that's the point over here as well. He's about to go down once again into exile. And he knows what exile is. He knows what exile is because he said what exile is back in chapter 31 and 32. After 20 years in the house of Lavan, he said to Lavan, I've been your slave. I've been oppressed. And when he returns in chapter 32, he sends a message to his brother Esau in Lavan Garti, I was a stranger. Slavery, oppression, and stranger, the three terms of the covenant, Gerut, Abdut, and Inui. Jacob understands it fully, having left the house of Lavan. And now, He's about once again to go down into exile. And God says, I want you to, this is my plan. And Jacob accepts the plan, presumably with the knowledge of what that entails. I'll come back to this in a minute. This is an incredibly important point that if what I'm saying is right, it's not that the Jacob will or Israel will endure Gerut, Abdus, and Inuit. It's that Jacob goes down to Mitzrayim knowing that what probably awaits him is Gerut, Abdut, and Inuit. Let me make one more point over here um, about Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim and about the Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim as the parallel to Yaakov leaving the land and going to the house of Robert. Here's the point I wanna make and then I'll stop and take questions. There's more to be said about this, but let me just say one more point. Yaakov agrees to go down and he brings down the family. And in verse number eight of this chapter, chapter 46, verse number eight, um, we have a genealogy of, of Jacob and Jacob's family. Starts in verse eight. And it lists the family. At the end of the list in verse number 27, it tells us that the total number of souls to the house of Jacob that comes to Egypt is 70. And when you read these verses, verses 8 through 27, that Jacob, and then you have a list of the names. And then the last verse is Joseph is in Egypt, two sons, and the total number is 70. Okay. Well, obviously, anybody who's read the Torah remembers immediately that this statement, these are the names of Jacob going down to Egypt and ends up with the number 70 is exactly parallel to the way the book of Exodus begins. The very beginning of Sefer Shemot, the next book, chapter one, verse one, etc. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came down to Egypt with their households. In um, verse number three, the number of the descendants, Jacob's progeny was 70. For Yosef, and Joseph was in Egypt, which is exactly parallel to chapter 46, verse number 27. Exactly parallel. 
So what do we make of that? So we're not studying the book of Exodus now, but I did want to make the following observation. And that is that what we have in the book of Exodus actually is what the academics call resumptive reading. The truth of the matter is, I made up that my term myself, believe it or not, not knowing that apparently it's a popular term in academia, resumptive reading. Now, let me tell you about my thought about resumptive reading in this particular case. When you have a statement in the beginning of Exodus that begins exactly the same way and ends the same as we have in our chapter, chapter 46, verses number eight to 27, maybe what the Chumash is saying is the following. Let's pick up the story from that moment where God speaks to Jacob. If you pick up the story, let's forget about the intervening chapters. Let's pretend that Exodus chapter one follows immediately upon Genesis chapter 46, verse number seven. What we have is Eloh Shemot is verse number eight. Let's, let's, let's resume our story from beginning of chapter 46. If you resume the story from the beginning of chapter 46, then what is very striking is that only a few verses into the book of Exodus, after we're told about coming down to Egypt, Joseph dies, that's verse number, number six. And then by verse number eight, there's a new, two verses later, there's a new Pharaoh who tells his people, these Jews are dangerous. Uh, they may join up with the enemy. And in verse 11, he appoints taskmasters to afflict them. And then in verse number 13, we have slavery. We have Inui and Abdut, immediately, actually. In other words, if you read the story of Exodus, and you pick it up from verse number seven, then it turns out that Jacob goes down to Egypt and immediately, virtually immediately, we have Abdut and we have Inui. We have two of the three covenantal terms. The Gayward appears in chapter two. And that only reinforces what I've been saying, namely that the Torah is making a point that in fact, the experience of Jacob, Jacob's family in Mitzrayim, and the experience of Jacob in the house of Lavan are truly identical. And not only truly identical, but if you look at it from the standpoint of resumptive reading, it actually follows right away, just a few verses afterwards. Jacob says, I'll go down. God says, this is my plan. He leaves Beersheba as he left earlier. Four verses later, five verses later, Inui and then Avdut. So it actually reinforces, I have more to say about that, but for now, let's, let's, leave, it, let's leave that for now. Let me stop here and let me take your comments or questions up to this point. Rabbi Silver, I wanted yes. to ask you, of course, the ultimate is that he's going to die, Yaakov. But the, the question is, maybe Hashem is protecting him from getting the full story about how this all transpired and all the uh, sort of an atrocity, what they did to Yosef. But of course, it, the, the longer picture is, is that, you know, he wants to see them before he dies. But it's like covering his eyes the way Yitzhak's eyes have been covered in the past. And, uh, you know, the story... Well, you raised an interesting question, and this is a question that many have raised. It's a very good question. We'll deal with it at some point in the future. I don't have a good answer. The question is, how much Yaakov knows, actually? It's a very important question. How much does Yaakov know about Yosef? Um, he certainly never directly says, there's hints in the Chumash, that he knows more than we're told, that he actually 
has a sense of what transpired with Yosef. It's certainly the case that Yosef never speaks. It's very striking. The rather right the the um, Hasidic works make that point, and others too. That Joseph, even though Joseph, we're told in the beginning, he's a big tattletale. That's the first thing you hear about Joseph. First number one, he brought back evil report. What is very striking about Joseph, as the story of Joseph unfolds, is how little he says to others about what happened. There's no words, He never tells Potiphar that no, I'm innocent. I mean, if he told them, it's not in the text. He never tells Jacob directly uh, what the brothers did, never. So the brothers claim that Jacob said to them before he died, tell Joseph to, to, to forgive you, but probably we have no evidence Jacob actually said it. So it's a, it's a wonderful question, how much Yaakov knows. I certainly suspects that we can demonstrate, he suspects, but does he know? Was he ever actually told? So the Chumash doesn't really say. So it's a very, we'll get to that question later on. It's a very important question, but I'm not sure there's a definitive answer in that respect. But so he suspects that there's, he, you know, he, other statements that he's made, you know, Shimon is missing, Joseph is missing, these things happened to me. He says, doesn't want to send Benjamin. So the question is, but it's never explicit. He never really says it. I mean, he hints at it, but he never says it explicitly. Does anybody else have any comments here or questions? in the chat or otherwise. When Yaakov uh, says, okay, I I'll go down um, because I want to see Yosef before I die. And then when God says, uh, you know, he will cover your eyes, maybe God is just assuring him, not only are you going to see him, but he's going to be with you when you die. Right. Uh, that is, I agree with that. We will see, though, that actually, I just, I, don't, I just don't want to give this away now because it's a very interesting punchline, but in the, we remember that the story where, I'll just say the following, the interaction, the main interaction of Joseph and his, and, his, and his father revolves around how to bless Joseph's children. That there, here, the, God said, Yosef, Yoshit, Yodo, Alenecha. He will place his hands over your eyes. But actually in the Chumash, we'll get to this later, but in the Chumash, so Yaakov, the way Yaakov wants to bless his grandchildren, Joseph's children, and then he switches his hands. He places his right hand on the head of, of Ephraim, who stands to his left, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. And when Joseph sees this, the Torah says the following, Joseph saw this, it was evil in Joseph's eyes, and he took his father's hand. And we read exactly what it says over there in this chapter. 48, because the Chumash plays with God's statement. Um, yes, so, so it says the following. In verse number 17 of chapter 48, Yosef Joseph saw, you have the same word, that Jacob had put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it was evil in his eyes. So the Chumash later plays with this idea of Yoshit Yodo, right? And you have Enov. Yoshit Yodo Alenecha is what it says here. But later on, he sees with his own eyes that his father has placed Yoshit, the hand on Joseph thinking the wrong son. And maybe there's something to it. Maybe what God is, maybe, maybe in retrospect, the reason Jacob has to go down to Egypt, we'll come back to this point. I'll sit to ask the, make the comment. I'll make the point now that the real reason Jacob has to go down to Egypt 
is not to see Joseph, but to include Joseph. Joseph is the viceroy of Egypt. He comes with his chariot. He's traveling with his chariot. His name is Tzafnat Panea. He has two Egyptian children. And the point is that Jacob has to figure out a way to include Joseph, which he does, not by including Joseph directly, but by including Joseph's children. And he includes Joseph's children the way he wants to include them, namely Ephraim first, Menashe second. Because in Menashe means to forget. Yosef, Yoshit, Yodobi, as if God is saying to Jacob, listen, you better go down to Egypt. Because if you leave it up to Joseph, he, he'll never get included with the family. Because he's an Egyptian and his kids are Egyptian and his wife's an Egyptian, his father was an Egyptian priest. Your job, your mission is to figure out a way to include your beloved son. And the, only, the way he includes him is through the children. Because the brothers may not stand Joseph. They don't dislike their nephews. They like their nephews. So he includes Joseph through the nephews, but the way he wants to do it. Joseph would do it differently. What, what Jacob's, what Jacob puts his hand on the head of Ephraim. No, so for, for, for Yosef, by it's evil in his eyes. He says, Father, you made a mistake. He tries to pull his father's hands off. He's trying to pull his father's hands off. And Jacob says, Son, you may be very wise and all this. In this regard, I know better. No, he's also going to be good. It's got to be the way I do it. So there you have already, I think, the Chumash. I didn't want to get to this now, but since you made the point that the Torah plays with this language, Yosef, Yoshit, Yodo, Alenecha, the Chumash plays with it later on. You have Yad, you have Ayin, and, and, you, and, and you have Yoshit. You have all three words in the little story of Joseph and Jacob disagreeing about how the family has to proceed. For Joseph, it's Benasha. Well, he's very proud. I came to, came to the country with, with seven cents in my pocket. Look how successful I am. That's Joseph's thinking. I've forgotten my past. I had no past. My father's house was always trouble. That's Joseph's thinking. And Jacob's thinking is, one second, forgetfulness can't be primary. Ephraim, it's got to be primary, among other reasons, because it's a recognition that Mitzrayim is a place of suffering. You have to come with that recognition. This, is, this can't be our home. The culture is not our culture. The values are not our values. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care what kind of Rolls Royce you drive around with, or your chariot, it's irrelevant. From my perspective, says Jacob, Menashe can't be first. Yes, he's also blessed, but he has to be included under the aegis of, of Ephraim. So that I think is what God is hinting at. And we'll pick up with this point because this is to me is one of the critical points about Jacob's role, why he really is going down. It's not just to see him. He thought to see him. No, you have worked there. You have plenty of work in, in, in Egypt. You've got to put the family together. Not so simple. Um, but we'll get back to this point as well. And, and thank you for that comment. Um, anybody else with any other comments? If not, we'll continue. Is there anybody else? Uh, we have we don't have any comments in the chat, so okay, so I'll continue. Fine, no problem. Okay, so let's continue now. Um, let's get, let's pick this up with verse number five, chapter forty-six, verse number five. Um, so now, so that's what God said to Yaakov Anochi, and Jacob accepts it. He named. He already said he named. He accepts. This is God's plan. Apiadibo. This is God's plan. Now we have Vayokom Yaakov. Now we have an interesting three verses here. Vayokom Yaakov mi Beersheba. So Jacob arises from Beersheba, gets up from Beersheba. 
And sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, carried their father and the children and the wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent. That's verse number five. They took their cattle. And all the possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt. <coughs> and it says, Yaakov, <coughs> Jacob, and all his children. Yaakov, Jacob, and his family with him, his children, his grandchildren, Ito, with him, Benotav, his daughters, apparently he has daughters. Ubenot Banav, his granddaughters, Bechols are all his descendants, Hevi Ito Mitzrayma. When you look at these three verses, it's very striking that you could actually break them up differently. In other words, who is doing, who's, who's, the, who's the main actor in these verses over here? So in verse number five, it starts with Vayisu, they carried first to the children, to the brothers, to the children. They carried Jacob, their father, and the wives and the children in the wagons, which Pharaoh had sent, they, plural, they took their cattle and all their possessions. They came to Egypt. That's the middle of verse number six. And you are very strange. Yaakov, Jacob and his, Zaroito, Jacob and his children, and all of his, all of his family, his, his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, all his family, all his offspring, he brought with him to Egypt. That's all in the singular. singular. But what I would point out is the following. When you take a look at these three verses and break them up that way, they break up in a very interesting way. When it talks about the sons, when it talks about the children carrying Jacob, it mentions, it mentions the, the wagons, the agolot, which Pharaoh had sent. It mentions the cattle. It mentions the possessions. That's when it talks about the children. When it talks about Jacob, it's very striking. It only mentions the family. It doesn't mention any possessions. It doesn't mention cattle possessions, wagons, or anything like that. It mentions Jacob and his descent, his offspring, his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, all the family he brought with him to Egypt. And my point over here is that maybe what the Chumash is setting up is a difference, a distinction the Torah may be drawing here already between, and this, this, these verses seem so innocent, but actually what the Torah may be hinting at, which I think is a profound truth in, the, in this story, is that Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt with, 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 with different mindsets. For Jacob, and we know this from the story that I mentioned before in response to Tova's comment, but Jacob Mitzrayim is a dead end. He wants out of there as fast as he can go. Now God says stay, he's gonna stay. But Jacob's last request to his Joseph and to all his children is get me out of here. I don't wanna be buried in Egypt. He doesn't wanna be there. He has no interest in Mitzrayim and he rejects Mitzrayim's culture totally. That's Jacob. But as far as the other brothers are concerned, the brothers and Joseph are concerned, it's not so simple. In point of fact, one of the big questions in the Joseph story is, why did the brothers stay there? 
After all, Joseph says there's five more years of famine. Okay, the five years of famine have ended and we still find Jacob's children in the land of Egypt. They were sort of, they, was, they were connected, deeply connected there. And I would say that they even go down to Egypt in the first place with a mindset of, not with the mindset of, this is not our place. With a mindset of, maybe you could work. It is a place of prosperity. They have friends in very high places. Joseph will treat them well. Joseph will give them special attention and special, uh, you know, he gives them all kinds of benefits that the others don't have, etc. And I think what the Torah is setting up over here is already, already, as they're going down, for Jacob, this is not where he wants to be. Jacob understands God, this is part of this is part of building the nation. I have, I have no choice because God said Anochi, that's Yaakov. But Jacob also understands something else that they don't understand. Jacob understands what it means to be an exile. They have no understanding of it. There's certain experiences in life that no one else, only people who have gone through it can understand. And so the outsider can never understand it. Sometimes they think they do, but they don't. Only one who suffers through it can understand it. And Jacob has suffered through it. Jacob knows what it means to be in Gullus because he was in the house of Laban. He said it himself. I was a stranger there. I was a slave there. I was oppressed. Gabriel, Abdus, and Emily. He knows what awaits him. And for the other people, they don't. And I'll give you a, an interesting par parallel to this that I had mentioned earlier in, the, in, in our studies at some point. And that is the story, one of the great stories in the book, obviously. It's when Jacob returns from Laban's house and his, his brother Asaph awaits him with 400 men. Jacob is very frightened. And it says that Jacob divides his people in two. Jacob prays to God. Jacob sends gifts. So, and then it says that Jacob comes to a, a ford, a Marvar Yabok, and everybody else crosses over. The whole family crosses over to the other side. But Jacob was left alone. And we have to ask ourselves the question, how come everybody else can cross over? Everybody else crosses over, that's no problem. But Jacob cannot cross, cannot be over until he wrestles and struggles. I think the simple answer is that if everybody else, the crossing over that particular four, that water, which means entering to the sacred space, the promised land, they know nothing about the promised land. They know nothing about the covenant. They know nothing about the struggles. So for them, it's very simple. There's no problem, you cross over. But for Jacob, it's different because when it waits, Jacob is Esau. And not just Esau, but the whole story of Esau and the covenantal promise and the question of Jacob's worthiness to be a recipient of the covenantal promise. So for Jacob, it's, he can't just cross over there. For Jacob, the crossing has a completely different meaning. And I say by analog, that's what you have over here. For the other brothers, there's a famine here. We, got, we, got, we have some protexia down there in, in, in Mitzrayim. Why not go? Yeah, the wagons are great. The wagons that Pharaoh sent. And remember about the Agolot, by the way. The Agolot, Egel, the Egel, Agolot, wagons, but related to the word Egel, the Egel, of course, is the great story of the book of Exodus. And the Egel, was of course a reversion back to Mitzrayim. The ego is the <coughs> golden calf story is these are the gods who took you out of Egypt, which means you never left Egypt in the first place. 
So the idea of for the brothers, they see this maybe as a good business opportunity. But for Jacob, there's no there's there's, there's no plus to this. It's only negative. He, he knows what it means. They they can't possibly know what it means. Only Jacob knows what it means. On the other hand, this is his mission, which he has chosen to accept. He said he named it. This is God's will and the struggle to return. And Jacob will return, okay, after his death, but he will be the, the model of one who can return. So that's the point over here about these little verses. It all seems so innocent and simple, but actually when you look at them from a slightly different perspective, it's not so innocent. Jacob goes down and apparently he never communicates to his children, never fully communicates certainly what this is really about. Jacob understands it, but do the others understand it? Who knows? Same thing when he spoke to his wives, Rachel and Leah, takes them out to the field. Your father doesn't like me anymore. It's very dangerous. And they put it in terms of, listen, let's go. Everything that it's no, it's no good here. He treats us like objects, like commodities. And all of this stuff that you have belongs to us. They, they, they respond purely in economic terms. But for Jacob, it can't be only economic because he has to fulfill a vow and a promise. He has to go back for that reason. God said, return and fulfill your vow. But for them, it's not about a vow. So for whatever reason, Jacob doesn't or can't, whatever reason, fully share what it's about, about the return. And over here, I get the same sense. He doesn't, they don't really understand what it means to go to Mitzrayim. They see the wagons, they see the prosperity, and they don't leave afterwards. Okay, let me take a couple of other, one other comment here and then I'll stop and take comments or questions if there are any. Um, you know, I, I think that we see that we saw this in our, in our own time. It's only the people who are oppressed can really understand it because people who went through the Holocaust, many of them when they came back and start to describe what the oppression was, and they were met with answers like that can't be so because you could never have lived through that. And so right. sure. who, who really go through it, who can understand it properly. Well, the Holocaust, I would say, is I remember many years ago, I was uh, saw a movie, I think it was on the west side of Manhattan. I even have been in PJ. I went to, uh, they had a movie about survivors who went to, uh, to uh, South America. And there was a fellow there, I knew him from the Kalbach Shul actually, a fellow my age with older. I remember we were walking out to seeing this movie. He was a survivor. He says to me, I still can't believe that it actually happened. You know, it's just, those things, some things are unbelievable. You know, I mean, who could believe such a thing? But that human beings could descend to such a level is something which is, you know, talk about the Holocaust as being a question about God. I don't really see it that way. I mean, there are plenty of questions about God, but they're not new with the Holocaust. The real question is about the human being, the depravity of the human being so-called civilized human being. That's what makes the Holocaust unique in my view. The, the, the heights of civilization, how can they descend to this kind of behavior? So you understand why you can't believe it. But I think beyond that though, even all kinds of other situations, people may have personal issues, things that happen in this world that some of them are very hard for an outsider to fully grasp what it is, the, the depth of the problem, not getting into specifics. But I think that's True, and I think the idea of trying to understand the other person is not a, it's, it's very difficult. I think it requires a lot of work to put yourself in the other guy's place, which is, from a certain perspective, not really fully possible, but we do our best to try to put ourselves in the other person's place. Um, 
And let me just take one last, one last word over here about the next little section. The next little section begins in verse number eight. These are the names. This gives us a list of the names of all the family of Yaakov that goes down to Egypt. And um, it ends up with the number 70. The number 70, which is an interesting number. Maybe next week we'll talk about the number 70. But the question is how you get to 70. This is the interesting question. So I'll just point something out now and you can start next week with this question of how you get to 70. Because obviously, if you talk about the family, well, Jacob only has, he has 12 sons and he has Dina. So that, and you, if you want to count Jacob, that, that makes the 14, that doesn't get you to 70. So they have to include the grandchildren. And what's curious is who was included and who's not included and who sometimes the Chumash here, and we'll look at this next week, includes not just the grandchildren, but includes the great-grandchildren. I'll make, let me make point out one thing which is very interesting here about the number 70, which all which the commentaries talk about, the Ramban talks about it in more than one place. And when you get to the names, because you know, the Torah's gonna get to turn out to the number 70, that, that you know. How do you get to 70 is the problem. So here's one, one curiosity I want to point out, and I'll stop and take last comments or questions. So it, it, it gives the names of Jacob's sons and Dina, and then it gives the names of the, some of the grandchildren. So we get to verse number 12, Judah, who are the sons of Judah? These are the people going down to Egypt, it says. These are the names of Jacob's children who went down to Egypt. These are the names of Jacob's sons. Er, Vionan, Vizerach. So Judah had five sons. Er, Onan, Shewa, Peretz, and Zerach. Vayomot, Er, Vionan, Vieretz, Kenan. Vayu, Bnei, Peretz, Chetzron, Vichamur. So Er and Onan, as we know from the story of Judah and Tamar, they died in the land of Canaan. Peretz had two sons, Chetzron and Chamur. Now you ask yourself the question, there are two questions. First of all, is Peretz the only grandson who had children? Of course not. Probably most of them, not all had children. Most of them certainly had children. Why do we mention specifically Chetzron and Hamul? Number two, why mention Ervonan altogether? He had five sons, Ervonan, they died, and Peretz had two sons. So what is that about? Are the two replacing the two? And now we have another problem. When you count up the numbers, we have to check and see whether Er and Onan are included in the number that's given. We'll have to take a look. I believe they actually are included, which raises another problem. How can you include Er and Onan among the 70 who go down to Egypt if the Torah says black on white, and we know this anyway, that Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. In short, the number 70 is a very curious number. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but next week we'll spend some time on this number 70 and how the Chumash arrives at the number 70. The Ervonan problem is well known and it's something very interesting to think about. Ramban has his own path, but we'll talk next week about the number 70 and then we will move from that. The family is in uh, Egypt and then we'll start with what happens to the family when they get to Egypt, which begins in verse number uh, 28, which is very interesting. And we'll see the effect of the family in Egypt not only on, on themselves and on Yaakov, but actually on Joseph. Because once the family comes down to Ibn Shrayim, 
things change. Things become very much more complicated once the family is living together with Joseph in the land of Egypt. But I'll stop at this point. We have a couple of minutes still. So but there were a couple of comments I saw earlier. If you want to speak up now or what's in the yes. chat. We Go have ahead. a question in the chat from Stacy. Um, yes. Do you read the Genesis story as divine providence or as a consequence for bad behavior? They're such different readings. Stacey, yes, I don't I, know if you I, want to say I, more I, on that. I, I addressed that earlier. I'll repeat what I said earlier. It has to be read both ways. It's read both ways. It's certainly the Chumash is saying, I know there's a contradiction, but it's, you have to read it both ways. It's not one or the other, even though logically it's one or the other. But the Chumash invites the reader to read it both ways. For example, for example, let's take the case of Joseph going down to Egypt. Joseph ends up in Mitzrayim. How does Joseph end up in Egypt? So on one hand, we know he ends up in Egypt, he comes to meet his brothers, and the brothers see him from a distance. There comes the dreamer. They take off his coat. They throw him in a pit with the intention of killing him, but Ruben intends to save him. But then in the interim, either they decide to sell Joseph themselves or more likely, they're discussing his possible sale, and traders, other people come from another direction. The Midianites come, and they pull Joseph out of the pit, and they sell Joseph to Mitzrayim. So from that perspective, it's the brothers. It's the conspiracy of the brothers. It's Joseph's own maybe bad behavior, which contributes. It's Jacob's favoring and showing his favoritism towards one son, and that is the human dimension, that we end up, Joseph ends up in Mitzrayim, and eventually the whole family does, on account of the misbehaviors of the family, Joseph, the brothers, and Yaakov. That's one way to read it. But then there's something else curious, that when Joseph is sent to find his brothers in Shechem, and he comes to the city of Shechem in chapter 37, and he arrives too late, he got lost. And when he arrives at Shechem, somebody comes over to him and says, what are you looking for? This Ish. Oh, I'm looking for my brothers. And the Ish says, they've left here. They've gone to Dotan. They're not in Shechem anymore. And Shechem is a city of brotherly love. That's why Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem. Who is the Ish? Who is this mysterious person who actually, Joseph doesn't ask him for directions. He goes to Joseph. Unusual. What are you looking for? Your brothers? Dotan. Dotan means quarrel, trouble. The Ish clearly is a messenger of God in some sense. The same Ish who tries to block Jacob from entering into the land is the Ish who sends Joseph out of the land. And the point of the Ish, you could have told the story without the Ish, without this messenger, without this mysterious person. But the Chumash wants to remind us at every turn, it's part of God's plan for divine providence. It's the Anochi that we began with. I will say to me, which one is it? It's gotta be one or the other, to which my response is, logically you're a thousand percent correct. And literarily you're a thousand percent incorrect. As it says in Pirkei Avot, Hakot Varushut always foreseen by God, but, but, but choice is given. And that's how the biblical text works. The biblical text wants it both ways, has it both ways. Of course, our concern in a certain sense, we're more interested in the human dimension because we want to learn from the human dimension how typically not to behave, typically. On the other hand, we also want to come to the understanding that Jacob understands that our task is to figure out what God would want. What does God demand of us? And if God makes difficult demands and God of Genesis makes difficult demands, not just of the binding of Isaac, but the entire covenant is about 
living under very difficult circumstances, being a stranger, being enslaved, being abused, to set it up for somebody else, not even for myself. What Jacob will say in a couple of chapters later when Pharaoh says, how old are you? Not as old as you think. I, my years are few and bad. That's what Jacob sees. I've, I've suffered my whole life, says Jacob, which is true. But he doesn't, he said the truth. But he's the one who says he needy, but he accepts it because he's part of a covenantal promise and he does what God wants him to do. So it's both ways. The book of Breshit and the Bible in general wants it both ways and has it both ways. You have to read it both ways and we learn from both. But at the end of the day, it's trying to teach us something, trying to teach us how to behave. It's also trying to get us to understand, to figure out what, what God would want. To be in a place where he could figure, without being told even, like Abraham with the binding of Isaac, God never said sacrifice the, the animal instead of Isaac. He understands that's what God wants. He figured it out. How do we put ourselves in a place where we can autonomously understand what God would demand of us? That's the great challenge in the Chumash. That's the challenge of life, obviously. And, you know, there, there are things that can help us and guide us along the way. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's up to us to try to figure that out in each in our own way what God would demand of us, each individual person, what is the right thing to do in this setting, to look at it through a different perspective, not only our own eyes, but, but the eyes of the divine. That's, that's a great challenge. Okay, I'll, anything else? Um, there's nothing else in the chat. All right, good. Thank you all very much then. And if you have any other information, uh, it's good to be back. I don't think we're gonna finish Genesis this semester, I must say, because I'm not going to, we're not going to rush through this. We still have Jacob blessing all of his children and we have the end of the story. But next, we don't finish now. We'll finish the next time we convene. I think we will be, we'll be able to finish. I mean, you never actually finish, Breshi, because when you finish it, you realize there's so much you don't understand. But okay, but that's that's the way it is. Okay. Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank, you Thank you very much. Well, thank you, everyone, and especially to Rabbi Silva uh, and to everyone who everyone for their comments and questions. We have a variety of exciting classes for our Sfirat HaOmer Zman, so you can find all of those classes and lectures and register for them at drisha.org. And I will see you all next week for our second session of the beginning of the end. <laughs>